Well, good morning. Don't you just love the Old Testament? Turn to your neighbor and say, I haven't got a clue what that story's about. <laughs> it could be a plot line that's worthy of the script writers of EastEnders, couldn't it? Or House of Cards or West Wing. The story of Naboth and his vineyard, of evil King Ahab and his even more evil wife, Jezebel, was written many centuries ago. And yet it's a story of timeless things of corruption and injustice waged by the wealthy on the poor, of discontent and oppression by the powerful over the weak, and ultimately of the enduring justice and mercy of our Father God. The plot is played out by four main characters. King Ahab, the king who has everything, master of all he surveys. Naboth, the vineyard owner, who is only mentioned here in 1 Kings 21 and once more in 2 Kings 9. The wicked Queen Jezebel, who just seems to make every situation worse than it was before. And God's man for the moment, Elijah. Well, let's start with King Ahab, shall we? After all, he was the king, the king who had everything, acres of land, multiple palaces, even a summer palace where he could go to rest and unwind, servants, banquets, wives, a court, an army, priests, and many, many loyal subjects. And yet, all he could think of about in this story is what he didn't have. He didn't have poor old Naboth's vineyard which he fancied turning into an allotment where he could grow his vegetables. If only he could have Naboth's vineyard, everything would be just great. This was the perfect spot to grow his cabbages and tomatoes and potatoes, an ideal location just next to the palace, the final piece in the jigsaw. Unfortunately, Naboth didn't see it this way and refuses the king the request to purchase the vineyard for a fair price. And so King Ahab has a good old sulk, a mighty, mighty kingly sulk, which sounds a bit like a toddler's tantrum because he can't get what he wants. And he says, I want it, and I want it very, very badly. Well, the Bible puts it like this in verse 4. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Why would someone who had so much and had so much to be happy about, who was supposed to be the king of Israel, reflecting God's rule and God's reign to his people, become miserable just because he missed out on a new piece of property? Anyone in the kingdom would have swapped their roles with his to enjoy the opulence of feasts and banquets and palaces. They would have been over the moon to have a fraction of what he had, and yet he's unhappy because he can't get even more. I want you to be honest with me a little bit this morning. Have you ever sulked because you couldn't get what you wanted? Have you ever caught yourself acting like a toddler in a tantrum and you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, for goodness sake? I don't think King Ahab is alone in his discontent. 
We come across many people in our lives, don't we, who have more than enough but are still not satisfied. Many for whom there is an aching and a yearning for more despite all that they have. Pop stars evading paying their taxes, an employee committing fraud in their business, a husband being unfaithful to his wife. More worryingly, King Ahab stands for all of us who have not learned to be content with what we have, but are continuously yearning for more. He stands for all of us who have an iPhone 5S but really need an iPhone 6 Plus. For all of us with a TV screen less than 32 inches who really need a 50-inch curved smart HDTV. For all of us who are are anxious for promotion or higher pay. For each of us for whom the next gadget, the next holiday, the next job, the next partner, the next, the next will bring that ultimate satisfaction. For Ahab, it was an allotment. What is it for you? Ahab stands for all of us who've sulked because this life hasn't given us all that we wanted or felt that we deserved. It's the tyranny of Ahab's discontent. It's the tyranny of our discontent. We can see it all too clearly here in King Ahab's life. It's almost laughable, ridiculous. How can a king who has so much end up sulking over not getting a cabbage patch? And in case you're thinking, oh, that's very well, but I'm not rich, I'm not one of those who has an awful lot, remember, if you have a bank account, you're in the top half of the world's population. Over 3 billion people and 75% of the world's poorest people don't have access to any savings mechanism. If you're a girl and you've started in secondary education, you're in the top 30% of girls Worldwide, The global average income is around £6,000 per annum. And if you earn more than £30,000, you are definitely in the top five, if not top 1% of earners worldwide. You're on the Sunday Times rich list. As the writer to the Hebrews says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Fundamentally, King Ahab had lost his sense of who he was before an almighty God and the contentment that comes from knowing that he was a child of the King of Kings. Are you discontent this morning with what life has thrown at you? I struggled for many years with a striving after what I didn't have, a striving to be noticed and to fit in, a striving after a contentment that I knew was lacking. And I've only found one sustainable solution. One solution that's become a bedrock of my daily walk with God. A daily reminder of the truth of who I am in Christ. And allowing this truth to go deeper and deeper. And when the specter of the ugliness of toddler tantrum discontent raises its ugly head once more in my life. To remind myself, as Neil Anderson of Freedom in Christ puts it, in Christ I am accepted. I am God's child. I'm a friend of Jesus. I've been justified. I'm united with him and am one with him in spirit. I've been bought with a price. I'm a member of his body. I'm chosen, I'm adopted, I've been redeemed and forgiven, I'm complete in Christ, I have access to the throne of grace through Jesus, I'm secure, I'm free from condemnation, God works for my good in all circumstances, God will complete 
his good work in me. I am born of God. I'm a citizen of heaven. I'm significant. I've been chosen to bear fruit. I'm God's workmanship. I'm being built into God's temple. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I may approach God with freedom and contentment. Are you discontent this morning? Are you discontent this morning? Then don't yearn for an allotment. Don't yearn for a cabbage patch. Don't yearn for an iPhone 6S. Don't yearn for a 50-inch television. Yearn for a deeper sense of who you are in Christ. There is true contentment. Never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you. King Ahab had lost that sense of who he was. But I don't think Naboth had. And we turn to him next. I believe actually Naboth was quite content. He knew exactly who he was and what he stood for. And he demonstrated it so clearly in his response to King Ahab. He was enjoying life in his God-given vineyard. His vineyard that was an image of the good and abundant life that takes shape for those who live in close relationship with God. God, the owner and keeper of the vineyard, looks after it, helping it to produce good and abundant fruit. In the Bible, vineyards are meant to be good, fruitful places, producing wine that blesses all around. They're pictures of God's kingdom, overflowing with grace and mercy and goodness and fruitfulness. So this vineyard in Jezreel should be a good place, brimming over with all the good things God sows amongst his people. And Naboth is blessed to be living there under God's care and under God's provision, blessed beyond measure and a blessing to many around as he shared the wine that he produced from his vineyard. Naboth's vineyard is not meant to become a vegetable patch, nor can it be for sale. It's his ancestral inheritance. It's a piece of land given to his family way back when they entered the promised land. The land is meant to be enjoyed and to provide a livelihood and an income. It's meant to prosper its owner and to be handed down to his children. It's a symbol of peace and prosperity. God's law and provision meant that everyone in Israel was given a part of the land. It could not be taken away way and would secure each and everyone's future as part of the inheritance God has given his people. It couldn't be sold or added to the property portfolio of another, even if that person was the king. What a God we serve, a God who's provided for his people, for the poorest of the poor, to give them an inheritance and a land to call their own. One of the reasons still today that poor people remain poor is the lack of access to land. Paul Collier, in his brilliant book, The Bottom Billion, identifies lack of access to land on which to build a home, grow crops, and provide a secure future for their family as one of the five main reasons why one billion people still today live on less than 50 pence a day. I remember meeting Josiah after the Haiti earthquake. He and his family had had their home destroyed and were now living in a refugee camp. Their tenancy at will in their home was now being called into question by the government who wanted to secure the land to build a new office building as the rebuilding of Haiti took place. All that he had strived for and accomplished was being taken away from him. In Uganda right now, although people gain ownership of land after living there for 12 years, there's no paperwork and therefore land ownership can be overturned in a moment as the cities expand and demand for development grows. 
On the other hand, one of the greatest success stories in modern development is that 750 million peasant farmers were lifted out of poverty by the Chinese government in the 70s and 80s by returning land rights to those farmers. As one Mozambican farmer put it to me on a recent trip, why would I build? Why would I start a business? Why would I plow my fields when anyone can come and just steal it away? It's a biblical principle ordained by a God of compassion and justice that all should have access to land. He ordained the year of Jubilee where land returns to its rightful ancestral owners. Our God is a God of justice, justice for the poor, land for the poor, the right to build your own future, to own and steward a piece of land for God's glory. This is clearly a concept that goes way beyond King Ahab. He wants Naboth's vineyard and he'll pay good money for it. King Ahab who should be looking after the minorities, championing the cause of the widow and the orphan, standing up for the rights of the poor, reflecting God's heart, is instead building his own kingdom, his own wealth, his own empire. But Naboth is very clear. The Lord forbid it that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors, in verse 3. Naboth's rebuke to Ahab is an opportunity for Ahab to realize what he is doing. It's an opportunity for Ahab to wake up and smell the roses. An opportunity to return back to God's ways, to God's will for him and his people. An opportunity to look after the land, to enjoy prosperity, to return dignity, respect and kingdom living to the people under his care. And he totally misses it. Naboth brings back to Ahab's mind who God is what God's character is like, that God is someone who wants all of his people to be part of his kingdom, who desires them all to have a place to live and to prosper, who loves justice and is there to protect the poor and the vulnerable. Where is God reminding you today of his character and his purpose? Where is he in his grace giving you an opportunity to see the error of your ways and to turn back to him? He's waiting, longing for you to wake up and he's been sending you reminders of what he's like and who he is. The God of compassion, the God of justice, the God who loves to look after the poor, who provides land for his people so that they can grow and be prosperous and enjoy all that God has given them. And then we come to Queen Jezebel. Oh dear. Queen Jezebel. What a wife. King Ahab is sulking and has turned his face to the wall and won't eat. Enter Queen Jezebel, the loving, caring wife. What's the matter with you? She asks. Wow, these two are great together, aren't they? Two is definitely better than one here. Someone said no to me, Ahab blurts out. Now, Jezebel does what any good wife would do and gives King Ahab a good talking to. Is this how you act as king over Israel? Verse 7. Get up and eat. Cheer up. So far, so good. And if only she'd gone on to say something like, for goodness sake, Ahab, darling, You're supposed to mirror the character of God and show compassion and justice, mercy and grace to widows, orphans and children. This man Naboth is only trying to keep what God has handed down to him through his ancestors. Come on, get up, cheer up, look how much you already have. And you've got me. 
I'm sure we'll find an allotment for you somewhere. That's the kind of wives we need in our lives, isn't it? Ones that will kick us out of our sulks and our moans and focus us on the adventure that God calls us to. Adventures to defend the rights of the poor, to stand up for justice, to be pillars of integrity and grace in our communities. Spouses that will tell us that there's more to life than who wins the football on Saturday or what the latest gadget is. Spouses who will lift our eyes when we become self Absorbed Spouses who will not give up on pointing us to a greater goal. We need friends like that too. Friends who won't just have a pity party with us, but will point us to our calling. Friends who will call us out when we focus on the wrong things and are consumed by our own entertainment and consumption. Friends who will kick us up the backside and point us once more to the world that needs the grace of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends who will remind us of God's calling on our lives to bring bring love and joy and compassion and to fight for justice for the poor, freedom for prisoners, healing and for the sick and the hurting. But oh no, not Jezebel. Instead, she sets Naboth up before the local council with a trumped up charge of blasphemy. And before anyone knows it, what is happening is that Naboth's being condemned to death. Conveniently, the vineyard passes automatically to the king who gets his allotment After all, is that good news? Probably not. Notice how the city council are silent actors with the power to act but not the will to do so. Notice too how the very system that has been devised to protect the poor and institute justice is used to do the opposite. This is not only bad news for Naboth. Imagine how every other vineyard owner in Israel now feels. No system to protect them. God's law and God's provision turned upside down and inside out. You know, in tackling poverty, this is why advocacy for strong justice systems and for strong governments, advocacy against corruption and against the misuse of power is so important. It's as big an issue for us today as it was back in King Ahab's day. It's not enough to give someone a piece of land or to build them a school or an orphanage or to teach them to farm if the government will ultimately take away their land. It's time to rise up against injustice and to speak out for those who have no voice. It's time to tackle the systems that embody injustice in their governmental systems, in their courts, and to stand up and speak and to use your voice, to write to your MP, to get involved in Parliament, to get involved with, uh, with organizations like Micah Challenge and International Justice Mission. And into this scene, this awful scene, this terrible story, comes Elijah. So far, it's been an extremely painful story. An evil, evil king with an evil wife getting the better of a poor vineyard owner who tries to stand up for morality, integrity, and faithfulness and gets trampled on by the king and the very system that was set up to protect him. Nothing much changes, does it? We see these injustices every day. Children abused by people in power. Justice perverted. The wicked get in their own way. And it can be easy to cry out in despair. It's just not fair. There's something that rises up in us, a stirring in our spirit. It's a godly cry from us against injustice. It's a cry that must reflect God's character of protection for the weak and the vulnerable. And as the story comes to an end, there are a few plot twists that begin to reveal God's heart in all of this for us. Firstly, enter Elijah. 
who God sends to the newly acquired vineyard to meet King Ahab. Ahab is surveying his new allotment. He was probably working out where he was going to put the potatoes and where he was going to put the cabbages. And he's not pleased to see Elijah, who he now calls his enemy. I found you, Elijah answered, verse 20, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Elijah is clear to King Ahab, anyone who seeks to take that for his own, which is not rightfully his own, dispossesses not only that person, but God. And God will stand up for those whose fate he has come to share. The fate of the poor, the fate of the vulnerable, all who've suffered the king's injustice. There is no place for you, Ahab, in the land of God's promises, not even when you're dead. And there won't be any permanent space for any of your offspring either. In the land of Israel, where God planned for his people to prosper and grow, the family line of Ahab will come to nothing and will not find a place to rest, even in death. God will not let injustice against the poor, marginalized and downtrodden go unpunished eternally. I remember in 2004 traveling to Beslan. The Beslan school hostage crisis started the first day of September back in 2004 and lasted three days. It involved the capture of over 1,100 people as hostages, including 777 children, and ending with the death of 334 people. I remember four weeks after that siege, standing in the graveyard with the graves of those 337 people freshly dug with fresh flowers on them. And I remember being there with a team and one of the young team members who hadn't been a Christian very long saying to me, Simon, how do you make sense of this? How do you make sense of this injustice? How can you believe in a God who allows this injustice to happen? And I turned to him. Well, I prayed quickly because I didn't know how to answer. And then I turned to him and I said, you know, one day, I'm going to bow the knee before a God who I believe will make sense of all of this. Where ultimately there will be justice. Where ultimately someone who's much cleverer, engaged in the world than I ever will be, will be able to make sense of what's going on. And that's the kind of God that I worship. A God who at his heart has this passion for justice to be done. And when he makes sense of that, and when that all comes together, I'll bow the knee. I'll bow the knee because I know humanly that's not possible. Humanly, I cry out at all the injustice in this world. But I believe in a God who's bigger than that. I believe in a God who's more gracious than that. I believe in a God who makes sense of all that injustice and will bring that all together. And ultimately, that I will bow the knee and worship before him. 
I can't believe either there will be no one or nothing that can make sense of it and that gross injustice will remain unpunished eternally. Can you? And this is one of the arguments that falls down with atheists and and secularists. What happens at the end where there's no justice? And we believe in a God of compassion and justice, of justice and mercy. But for now, God has put us here and asked us to act in his character and in his likeness. And as Micah 6, 8 says, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. God has commanded us and given us this solemn charge. It's time to rise up against injustice. You know, I get angry and fed up more today than I ever have before. I'm angry and fed up that I still have to travel to communities that don't have access to clean water to drink. When the global bill for nuclear weapons for one year could eradicate that problem just like that. I'm fed up and angry to keep hearing parents say that they can't afford to send their children to school and that there are no adequate healthcare facilities within walking distance of their home. I'm fed up and angry that girls have a lesser opportunity to go to school and that the literacy rate is still under 50% in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm fed up and angry that one billion people tonight will go to bed hungry every night when we waste food and send it to the landfill. And what God requires for us is to fight for justice, not charity, you notice. We've replaced the word justice because it sounds too hard with the word charity. Charity is for when we can afford it and when we feel like it. It's an act of choice, not obligation. Justice, however, is a demand and a requirement on us as Christians to act in the character of God and to love unconditionally the poor and the marginalized, to speak out on their behalf, to fight for their rights, to use every ounce of our will and intellect and energy to champion their cause? When will our charity become a demand for justice? When will we start to rise up against injustice in this world? But you know the most surprising and important and encouraging part of this story is what happens when Elijah does confront King Ahab with God's justice. And this is King Ahab's response. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring disaster in this day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. And this is the true story, isn't it? Not just a story of an evil and corrupt king and a poor vineyard owner to whom injustice was done. Not even the story of a prophetic call for justice from Elijah, but the story of a merciful and a gracious God who cares for the weak and the outcasts, who calls for his people to care for them too, and who reveals the extent of his grace and his mercy to those who truly repent by sending his son, Jesus And so however difficult the story so far, however difficult your story so far, the good news is that the story doesn't end here. 
Because 2,000 years ago, into our world, riddled with corruption, riddled with discontent and injustice, a Jewish carpenter broke onto the scene who announces to the world that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that he comes to announce good news. And it's not just any good news, but it was to evangelion, the good news. It was the good news that the Jews had been waiting for for centuries and that was foretold by Daniel and Isaiah and the prophets and the psalmists. It was no ordinary good news. It was the long-awaited messianic salvation. It was the good news that was announced by the angels. Fear not, behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It was the good news, the good news that God is here, the rule of God is here, the reign of God is here. It started now, it's arrived. The good news of God was walking the highways and byways of Galilee. This good news that was going to turn everything upside down, that would finally bring justice and compassion, righteousness, glory, power, mercy, forgiveness and grace, and ultimately reconciliation with Father God. Walking amongst them in human form, fully man and fully God, present here now. Jesus had arrived. Jesus who would show us what true contentment is. Jesus who would proclaim freedom for prisoners, sight for the blind, good news to the poor. Jesus who would point out injustice and champion the cause of the downtrodden and marginalize the widow and the orphan. Jesus who would be the king who mirrors fully God's heart. Jesus who came to end discontentment and injustice, who came to show us what it's like when the king of king rules and reigns. Jesus who would usher in a kingdom where eventually there would be no more injustice, no more crying, no more dirty water to drink, or children who don't go to school. Jesus who said that if you come to him, you will have life and life in all its fullness. Jesus who came to lift up the Naboth of this world and to pronounce justice for King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, but who also opens the door and offers mercy and grace and forgiveness to all who will hear the word of God and repent. Maybe King Ahab this morning has reminded you of your discontent and Jesus comes and says, you're my child, you're accepted, you're forgiven, find your contentment in me. Or maybe Naboth has reminded you of the character of God to look after the widow and the orphan, to stand up against injustice. And you've heard once more the call to join in with God's mission and that it's time for you to rise up and take a stand against injustice. Or maybe Queen Jezebel has reminded you that it's time to rise up and call those around you to a higher calling. Or maybe, just maybe, Elijah has reminded you that however bad your story so far. It's never too late to hear God's words, to hear his heart for justice and to repent and turn around and follow Jesus. Let's pray together.